Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Performance Science at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Dave Hamilton. Thanks for tuning in to episode 282 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So another part two from a long time ago. So this part one with Dave Hamilton was first recorded in July 2015. So four and a half, over four and a half years ago now. So a lot of the topics we discuss in this episode are takes on how Dave now thinks about the topics we discussed back then. RSI being one of them. Um, and we added some new topics. So assessing movement competency and quality. Um, some screening versus ongoing monitoring discussion, like I say, RSI. Uh, monitoring fatigue and enhancing recovery. And then finishing off with a little bit of a discussion around whether we are creating a culture of over-measuring and being too cautious with, uh, with our athletes. So really interesting part two, although part one, was four and a half years ago. Uh, but it was great to get Dave on because so much has changed. So he was at uh, USA Field Hockey when we spoke, now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and um, and Penn State lodged in between there. So really interesting journey from Dave and it was great to catch up again. And it was, uh, it'll be a great episode and one that you'll absolutely love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from I Measure You is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So I Measure You have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Dave Hamilton. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So four, maybe five years down the line for a part two with Dave Hamilton. So welcome back to the podcast, mate. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. 
thank you very much for coming on. So, Penn State and Buccaneers, since we last spoke, mm-hmm. just want to give us a bit of a, a journey down memory lane of what's what's happened since uh, since we, we spoke a couple of years ago when you were at USA Hockey. Yeah, so I did the USA Hockey. I think we spoke in 2015 or six, 15. So I think I've mm. been there a couple of years. Um, that was a good experience. Enjoyed that. We kind of started the program. They were ranked 12th in the world and finished last in the Olympics in 2012. Um, and then the assistant coach for the GB team went and took the head job there. And I was fortunate to go with him. Um, and then we had a good kind of three and a half years with the team, got to Rio um, and then finished fifth in Rio, which to be honest was a little bit disappointing, I think, with uh, where we probably thought or hoped that the team could could ultimately finish. Um, but it was a great group to work with. Um, it was a, an enjoyable journey. We got to put in place a lot of things that we could control ourselves. Um, so really nice to kind of see what you can implement and then how it ultimately then impacts the team and their growth. Um, and then at the end of Rio, um, an opportunity came up at Penn State University in State College, Pennsylvania, obviously. Um, and that job was slightly different. So it was an assistant AD position, um, assistant AD of performance science, which was overseeing all 31 teams at Penn State with the premise of basically trying to implement high performance thinking or sports science initiatives um, within the collegiate system. So can we take the institute model and can it be implemented within the collegiate system? So it was quite a challenge. Um, There was always a potential for resourcing uh, with a school that size, but the reality is you've got to kind of get boots on the ground and start working out from a strategic um, kind of helicopter view standpoint, how, how are we going to implement um, that institute model within a collegiate system? It makes sense that it should be fairly easy to do, but I don't think you can just take a institute model and kind of shoehorn it into a collegiate environment and hope that it works. So we, I kind of took more of this organic approach of, of saying, what is it, how does this need to look at Penn State in order to be effective? So early on, it was about trying to get with coaches, making sure that they're all talking the same language, um, trying to get an element of um, quantification in what they're doing, whether it's working with strength conditioning, medical, just getting people to get um, information down that's actually usable, uh, using the same language, getting people to talk a little bit better. And with 31 teams, it's obviously quite a challenge. So from there, I kind of had to get into a situation where you almost have to try and identify um, through a gap analysis, where are the opportunities to help what's team, what, which team's the fastest. Um, and so I kind of went through a process there of looking at how much resources with each team, um, how successful is that team, and does the resource represent the outcome? Because if you've got a lot of resource but you're not successful, then you probably need to go and fix that one. Uh, whereas if you have no resource but successful, you might be able to leave that sport alone for a little bit longer. So that was kind of one of the gap analysis processes that I went through. Um, but a lot of it was kind of meeting with coaches and looking at the low-hanging fruit where there are opportunities to get some performance changes early. Did that for two and a half years. A big part of the work was with the football program. It's a, it's a key sport at Penn State. I mean, they all are, but football's a big one. 
Um, so it made sense that a lot of my resources was direct towards that program. And then just in June last year, I was fortunate to get an opportunity to join Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which is where I'm at now in the NFL. Nice. Excellent. So we spoke about a little bit offline, whether that was the that was always the aim. And it's always interesting to see, like I suppose it is for, for anyone, but interesting to see a, a Brit go over there and do well and end up in a end up in a big job so how did that come around yeah it kind of out out the blue to be honest i was uh, back home with some family and i got a, um someone had reached out about would i be interested in this this opportunity and i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i kind of responded and went down the natural routes there's obviously a few few people that they'd reached out to or were involved in the process and um i was fortunate enough to get offered the job and kind of jumped it i'd always kind of had as I was saying to you offline, like who wouldn't want to work in the NFL um, at some point in their career? And I remember being in the UK when I was playing rugby, kind of doing exactly that, thinking, God, wouldn't it be great to be on the sideline or one of those NFL games doing what we do? Um, but I would have no idea what the avenue is to kind of get to that role, particularly when you're not even in the US. And so for somehow for me to, to end up and be fortunate to have this opportunity to, to work in the NFL with the people I work with is, yeah, is a, is a real kind of blessing in some regards. I, I'm enjoying it. Um, it's everything you kind of want it to be. It's challenging. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot of hard work and then it's super rewarding at the same time as well. Nice, mate. So was there, was there a, a person in post before you or was it a fresh, was it a fresh position that had been recently created? No, it was um, it was an idea driven by the general manager um, and the head coach, and obviously the the owners as well to have the foresight that they wanted to kind of develop this uh, performance science or sports science arm, um, and so it was a new department. Um, like I say, it kind of works that we have a head of strength conditioning, Anthony Paroli, who's an excellent guy at his job. Uh, myself doing the the performance science, then we have a head of medical as well, head of nutrition. So we all kind of work together. And then above that, we have a guy called Greg Skaggs, who, who oversees the performance departments um, and just kind of ensures that the right messages are getting up to senior management on the work we're doing and, and kind of going into bat for us as and when we're needing needing it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good team. It's a good environment. We're trying to do things slightly different now. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. Nice. So we spoke a little bit offline again about the performance science versus sports science. And I know across the whole conversation, we've got to be a little bit careful because of the organization that you're in and not saying too much. But why did you go down that route? Why do you think, obviously, pre past three roles, whether that was put on you or that was that you initiated that, but why performance science rather than sports science? Yeah, I think um, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I kind of having been around a little bit longer now, I kind of, and particularly being in the US, I feel like sports science is a term that potentially is um, viewed, and i got to be careful what I say, because I'm not trying to upset anyone, um, but it's viewed in a way where perhaps you're very much, um, it's something almost like a technician, right? Mm-hmm. So here there's a lot of technology and everyone's trying to, make sure they stay ahead of the game, keep up with the Joneses. And I, I wonder if sometimes we ultimately just kind of end up tagging on a sports scientist um, to ultimately be a sports technician and manage the technology. And it's like, thanks, mate. We're, can you just work out how to use that and 
and we'll let you know if we want to use that data or not. Um, and again, that is me being broad brush and almost idiotic in my opinion, but that's kind of where I had a fear that it would be. It almost devalues what I actually believe a sports scientist could be. Um, I also think here inevitably kind of culturally, like they have this ESPN sports science show, which is very much about breaking down a sport or breaking down a skill, whether it's looking at how does this guy cut so well or how can this quarterback make this pass over 40 yards to the wide receiver while his arm was at this angle and he threw the ball at this velocity. And like, I wonder if that's what sports science is about. It's about the sport and science. And I actually don't think the role um, in where I've kind of transitioned to that it's, it's that I don't, I don't possess those skills to be a biomechanist to kind of break that stuff down. Um, but in my mind, in my experience, it's more around the performance angle, right? You're trying to, look at what's going on from an environmental standpoint, what's going on from a scheduling standpoint, what's going on in the way that we're trying to teach our athletes to perform a particular skill. Can we help integrate medical and strength conditioning along a similar path or return to play? Can we add more or remove subjectivity from some of our performance decisions? Um, and so I think it's, it's more about performance. It's not about the sport. The sport is almost secondary to it. Ultimately, it's about winning. And so how do you win? And what can you manipulate or what, what interventions can you put in place to improve your chances of being more successful? Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, that, that, that feeds in nicely, <clears throat> excuse me, with the, the first point that we'd, I'd planned to, to chat about. And that was uh, assessing movement competency. And we'll come on to the some of the your work um, in previous positions and potentially this position using RSI, but just to get a bit of a overall picture of where you see um, assessing movement competencies competency as a whole and your philosophy around that would be great. Yeah, I, again, I kind of as I said in the last podcast, I really like to try and keep things simple in my mind. I like to kind of put them into boxes so it's actually manageable with what I'm trying to do with athletes or within my role. So when I'm thinking like physical competencies, um, I'd be thinking how well does this athlete produce force? How well does this athlete absorb force? Um, and are there any kind of dysfunctions in the way they move that I could make amendments to? So that's kind of how I would look at it from a real kind of basic standpoint. I think when you look at an athlete on the field and you look at the way they move, to think that you can probably put something in place in a weight room or a gym to have an immediate transfer on the field is, in my experience, probably not feasible. Um, so to take, for example, if you look at someone who doesn't cut very well, if I start doing single leg lateral drop jumps because I think it's going to improve stiffness in that type of motion, there may be a training effect, but you're not going to see it in the way they move. And so the general rule of thumb is if you're not very good at something, do it more often. And so I would take that type of thing and I would implement it more within my warm-ups. I think if you've got someone who's inefficient, inefficient and leaking energy, which is ultimately what we're talking about, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're leaking energy in the way you move, that probably needs to be addressed. And I think the way to do that is to create an environment where they can do it more often and they can do it in a way that's the challenge. So it has to be, I would always kind of create more competition type environments. So if I'm getting you to go against someone else, it's adapt or die. Like your body will eventually find a way to be more efficient in that particular movement. And in order to do that, it's going to have to make errors and it's going to have to learn or it's going to have to do something well. 
and keep kind of working on that. So I would take my warm-ups and I would utilize that as an opportunity, particularly if you're working with a field-based sport, right? You're potentially going to get five to nine warm-ups in a week, right? Whether it's on game day, whether it's five or six sessions in the week. And so each one of those warm-ups, I would have a different focus for the warm-up, um, whether I was working on plyometric, whether I was working on fun activities and team bonding, whether I'm working on um, neuromuscular stabilization or whatever it is, you kind of focus. And immediately now you've got five blocks of time with five different focuses on your warm-up, and then you're now, are now developing a curriculum through your season where not once does an athlete feel like they're repeating the same warm-up. And so my engagement level is up. And I would also use a lot of competition within that to make sure that there's always going to be intent to kind of adapt within a movement. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. So how, are you doing anything individualized in terms of looking at what these guys, I know it's difficult in team sport, especially American football, when you've got 50 plus guys, but how are you individualizing that so you get that time to, for them to focus on what they really need? Yeah, so I, let, let me start by saying that with my current role, I don't have that role. So okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Previous yeah. roles where I've had more of a strength conditioning influence. Right now, uh, let's talk about that environment. So within the NFL, my role and the way I support strength conditioning and medical is slightly different. So let, let's go down that route. So what would we do? We have the athletes come in at the beginning of the year, and we'll put them through some kind of profiling assessment that we've all, all de determined as a group is important. What are the assessments we need to do in order to make sure that if these athletes are going to be predisposed to injury risk, we've addressed it and we've programmed for it. And so that's how we do it. We work as a group to go through a screening process. If there's any technology or analytics needs to go on, we will do that. We're all as a team integrated doing it. And then that information is then disseminated and passed on to the relevant parties where they know that Rob has an issue with his right leg and therefore I need to address it with my training prescription. Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of yeah, how, it, how it's currently done. Um, and again, that environment, I think, where you're talking about the NFL is different to perhaps a high school athlete, um, a young development athlete, an amateur athlete, um, or even an Olympian who's kind of on that journey of trying to qualify or, or make an Olympics where you've got those opportunities. It's, it's a slightly different um, uh, athlete situation. Mm -hmm. So just looking back over maybe your time at, at um, field hockey, obviously you've got this big goal. Obviously you've got, you've got mini, mini, medium goals along the way with world championships and tournaments and whatnot, but you've got this long four-year goal of an Olympics. So in that scenario, does the setup and what you believe is the right thing to do in terms of movement competency and screening, does that change because of them longer-term aspirations and that, that flow a lot across the four years? Yeah, it's slightly different because you're um, you're kind of driving that pro the prescription a little bit as well. Um, so, if we we're talking about the Olympic program and how I would have done that, typically what we we do at the beginning of the year is we go through our profiling, right? And that may be hops, it may be jumps, um, it's also going to be some of the other physical attributes that you would look at, whether it's aerobic, anaerobic skill sets. Um, but basically, you're going to look at your athlete population and you're going to say, I know in field hockey that thoracic mobility is an issue. I know that they are quad dominant with poor glute. I know that there's upper hamstring tendinopathies. I know they typically have poor anterior knee displacement. Um, so let's assess all those things and let's see 
with regards to what normative data would suggest, who is an outlier, who's within that norm, and who do we care about? We all care about them all, but I mean, who do we need to quickly address? Um, so in that first battery of assessment, you're then going to move into like a block of time where it's like, right, I need to quickly address these issues that are kind of being red flagged to me because if I don't, I want to start losing players far too early. Um, so then you would go through a block, typically about six to eight weeks, and then you would redo the assessments. Okay, so where have we made those gains? And then hopefully you see some changes, some positive changes along the way, which means that when you go into your next block of time, um, there's less, hopefully there's less to do and you'll get into more of your, your basic program. So what the way I would do that so it continues throughout an entire quadrennial cycle is I would br break it up into what I would call robustness blocks. So if I had three lifts within a week, on a Monday, I might be focusing on adductors and glute activation. As before I even start a session, as like a primer, right? And then on a Wednesday, I might be doing, right, today is going to be about hip mobility um, and ankle dorsiflexion. And so you, you're kind of breaking down. And then throughout the entire year, I'm not worrying about those things. I know that because of the asymmetrical nature of this sport, that they're going to occur. So I'm just going to address them all the time. Almost like the microdosing, right? We're just kind of hitting it consistently. Um, because ultimately, athletes shape themselves in a certain way because the sport has perhaps evolved them into that situation. And if I spend all my time trying to get a golfer to swing the other way and develop their lat in a different capacity, I'm just wasting a lot of time and moving myself away from the performance end. So it's about what can I do to help this athlete be able to perform more effectively for a longer period of time I think is is the end goal. Mm -hmm. So I think we spoke about this four or five years ago when, when we when we had a, our first chat. But RSI, and again we spoke off air about where that journey came from and um, and your interest in that area and how it's been able to influence your practice. Would you be able to give us that? I know you're just saying the same thing again from what we chatted about before, but it was really interesting. So if you could just tell us the journey about um, your interest in RSI and how that's how it's helped along the way, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll try. But generally when I say thing a second time, it's not as good as the first. But <laughs> oh, don't say that. <laughs> right, here we go. So I first came uh, across it when I was at the English Institute of Sport in 2003. And Adam Beard at the time, I think, had done, he'd kind of done a, a small kind of paper on drop jumps and the different uh, box heights you can use and potentially how you could look at using it as a training tool. Um, I don't want to kind of screw up what his research was, but he definitely kind of introduced drop jump as a concept. Um, and at the time, I was working with some Olympic athletes down in Southampton, some divers, where within that sport, it was a platform diver. So off the 10 meter, it's kind of a hard surface. And in my mind, the drop jump in some degree replicated, depending on the dive, some of the actions they would do to, to go into a dive, um, that kind of that kind of starting hop, as it were. So I started to use that as potentially one of the focus areas to improve. Can I improve the stiffness of these divers? Can I increase more time in the air that allows them to complete more complex tasks? That was kind of the, the, the simplicity of it. And over time, what I saw was it was sensitive to not, not just some getting better at the drop jump, but once a week that I would do it, I was seeing some real negative changes. And then two weeks later, some very positive changes. And it became a... I became aware of the fact that, hey, this isn't too dissimilar to what they did in the Eastern Bloc with count movement jobs back in, don't know when, 
where they would have athletes work in a gym and at the end of their weightlifting session, they would have them do a count movement jump. Um, and then if the count movement jump showed that they weren't any worse or, at, or had actually improved, they would get them back in the gym and continue the lift to kind of maximize their return on that workout. Um, so from there, I kind of took it to the Middle East and I went to Aspire and started working with the soccer teams. I thought, I wonder if um, a drop jump could be an effective tool to measure fatigue in these guys, like whether they're getting tired through a tournament or whether they get tired after a game. So I thought the biggest uh, stimulus where you would see a change would be at the end of a game, right? I put you on, you play soccer for 90 minutes. Surely you're going to be tired after 90 minutes running around. Um, so that was kind of the, the simplicity of the study. We had kind of four games, I think, in seven days. And after before and after every game, um, they would do a drop jump. I actually started it by doing a count movement jump and saw that they got better through the, the tournament. The jump heights got higher, despite them doing jumps a lot. So it's not like they improved and learned how to jump. Um, and when I looked at pre and post game, there was no change. Like the count movement jump was like, yeah, if you jump this at the beginning, you jump it at the end. And I was like, oh, my God. Stu Cormack then came out with his paper in like 2007, 8 or 9, I forget, and I apologize to him, um, in his AFL guys where he was looking at CMJ, but again, he was looking at the RSI, right? So flight time, contraction time. Um, and we didn't have a force plate, so I had a switch map. So I'm like, well, I can't do a count room jump and look at contact and jump height on a, count, on a switch map. I just can't get that information. But if I did a drop jump, which I, again, have had experience with, I thought perhaps you could. So I started to use a drop jump, repeated exactly the same study, um, and saw that now pre and post game, the drop jump was sensitive to change. So when I did work, it affected my neuromuscular system. I wasn't as good at creating that RSI. So that was where my interest in the, uh, the RSI came. I then took that to the GB hockey program for four years um, and used that to kind of really model my periodization demonstrate to the athletes the impact of kind of a taper on their ability to perform would use it within competition to show coaches whether we're working too hard with some of our um, practice sessions leading into games so it became a real sensitive marker to performance state of the team and then from now i've used it with with most of the teams going forward so what protocols what protocol were you using for rsi yeah i kind of went with 30 centimeter 12 inches um and the other piece that was important was like the contact time. So when you're talking about reactive strength index, you're trying to look at neuromuscular fatigue. And the clue in my mind is in the word, right? Neural and muscular. So you're looking at the, the nervous system, how well that works, as well as what's the muscle function. Um, so in order to look at or stress the nervous system, you have to move quick. So um, Schmidt Bleicher back in the 1980s, whatever, spoke about fast and and slow stretch shortening cycle and greater than one or less than 150 milliseconds that's a real stress on a stretch shortening cycle so therefore the nervous system is having to work constantly to achieve that contact time um, and so what you find is by challenging the nervous system to try and get to 150 milliseconds which is tough they're constantly having to stress that. So it became hypersensitive as a marker of fatigue. If Some people couldn't even get there. It's so challenged. But when you're fresh, you just can. Um, so I think it's important when you do the drop jump, in, certainly in my experience, that that contact time is stressed. And I'd say 150, that was the kind of caliber of athlete that I worked with, and I thought it was an appropriate marker. Um, but what I would say is 
most people can jump greater than 150. It's not challenging on the nervous system. But the minute you challenge them to try and get below that, that's when you really start to see um, the impact on nervous system as well as kind of the muscle function. How high can you jump? So what cues and what things were you putting in place to make sure that they was, you were stressing the right system that you wanted to? I would always give them feedback initially on contact time. So I would demo a lot, try and make sure they understood the stiffness qualities. I talk about keeping their shoulders over their hips, um, not kind of dropping their shoulders forward. That means now immediately you've got more of a, a knee displacement. That's that kind of more of that ankle response. Um, I would talk about hot coals, get off as fast as you can. But at the same time, you've got to jump as high as you can. You don't want it to start looking like these people just kind of pulling their toes up on the mat. Um, I would start to cue them to almost try and jump before you've land, before you land, like all these things so that the more you can hone that technique, the more sensitive you're going to see to change. Um, and I've definitely had people come up to me and say, Dave, I've looked at this drop jump thing and there's nothing in the, from a neuromuscular standpoint, I just have so much data that suggests otherwise when a population, um, kind of gets it and can do it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer. I'm still kind of using it now. I've drifted more to Stu Cormac's CMJ because there is a lot to, there's a big familiarization period with the drop jump as well. I found it's like eight to 12 weeks. So if you've got that amount of time to put into it, great. If you haven't, then you're going to bin it real quick, move on to a full split, and I would say do count movement jump. Mm-hmm. So, but, so just explain that a little bit for us about Stu Cormac's work. Ironically, I'm actually speaking to him next week. But, um, yeah, it's a good timing. But, yeah, what do you mean by that? Which Oh, the, so Stu Cormac's work was a count movement jump. He did a couple of different tests. He did like a six-repeated CMJ um, and he did a count movement jump. But basically the, the premise of his research was that in order to identify neuromuscular fatigue, it needs to be a stretch-shortening cycle with a time constraint. Okay, so he looked at um, eccentric, concentric phase versus jump height. So when you get tired, your technique will change. So therefore, concentric, eccentric phase will change. And then you're look, simply looking at the ratio of what was your output, how high did you jump, and how did you, what technique did you choose to get there? And you've kind of seen it. When you see athletes come and do a count movement jump and they look real quick, and then you see them on other days where they just take more time to generate that force in order to get the same outcome. If you looked at jump height, you'd be like, well, they're, they're not tired. But if you actually looked at the technique modifications that now are going into their strategy, that's more indicative of neuromuscular fatigue. And the drop jump's the same, right? Does your contact time change because you can't produce, you can't get that system to work as well, or you need more time to generate the force to, to get that max height? So did you say you'd moved away from their side towards Stu's? So now I'm Monsters. using, okay. yeah, we, we use a number of different metrics, but one that's a, a big one for us would be flight time, contraction time with a count move jump because everyone learns to jump. Count move jump's a bit easier to learn than a drop jump. Um, force play is very a very static piece. I know they're more mobile these days, but they're still fairly cumbersome, so you don't want to move them around. Whereas in my previous roles, drop jump and a switch mat can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it was super useful, so it was effective. But now I, I don't need that. As much so the force plate i feel is a, a good fit for the the population we currently have so were you utilizing that at penn state or would the guys that you were working with utilizing that at penn state and if so how were you making changes across different sports was the change 
day to day, um, the rate of change day to day was that different across sports when you actually stepped in to make that change and say that guy needs a modification? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I know what you're getting at. So yeah. whilst at Penn State, um, the way it would work is we would have a number of force plates um, with a performance de science department that we would kind of then situate around the campus, whether it's like the football gym had a force plate, the basketball gym would share theirs with whoever else and hockey had theirs. You know what I mean? So there was like a number of them around. And so therefore it's a case of how do we, the strength conditioning are the ones who are going to implement the testing. She can't be in everywhere at once and 31 teams train at the same time. So we would support that, make sure that they, they understand the protocols or at least kind of uh, help guide the protocols and what they should do. And then the changes that would be made, I think in the Penn State example, that would be down to them to decide is an athlete tired or not? We would help with the data, but ultimately as a strength and coach, you want to have that interface with the athlete and understand your metrics you're collecting, right? <clears throat> you're the one who's going to make the changes. Um, if we go back to the Olympic setting where I was seeing those jumps and also doing the prescription from a strength conditioning standpoint, um, I wouldn't change them a lot. Like a lot of the time you want to create fatigue. That's the whole point of what we do in our programming is I want to create an element of kind of adaptation. I want to flirt with adaptation. I want to actually get it occasionally. And as a result of that, I damage muscle fiber. Muscle fiber shortens. Its ability to produce force declines. Like, that's a nice signal to receive. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily make a change. When you start wanting to make a change is now when you're talking about having an athlete um, in a tapering phase or um, a time where they need to kind of perform that's where you're going to want to make sure that, oh, I need to make some amendments to load exposure or a particular stimulus because they're not recovered as I thought. They're not as recovered as I thought or hoped they would be um, going in. So I kind of, something that I should point out, because it's kind of the way I look at the whole performance piece. I see it as three pillars. You want to have your best athletes available to play. So you you better make sure you do a good job in kind of screening those athletes, making sure that if they're predisposed to anything, you've done a good job early on in, in rectifying that. Uh, then you want your, your best athletes to be the best athlete they can be at their particular sport. So you can do very broad brush strength conditioning as we all do early on, but at some point you need to progress to how do I make you better at your sport? What are the physical attributes that make you a successful striker? Uh, do you possess them? Where do you stand? as it relates to best in the world, normal, okay, bad, because if you're missing a certain attribute, I can certainly from a, a physical standpoint start to help you improve those skills or attributes. Um, so you got your athletes available, you're making them the best they can be at the sport. And then the third piece is if they don't arrive on game day feeling fresh, then the chances of you winning aren't very high because they're fatigued, they're not gonna make good decisions, they're not gonna perform optimally. So I think if you can look after those three pillars, that's what winning is about. You have your best athletes available, they're the best at their sport, and they're playing, they're playing fresh. Everything else is kind of, you, you've, I think you've served your purpose as it relates to helping athletes get ready. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Dave. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on monitoring fatigue and enhancing recovery. A little bit on the travel side of things uh, with the NFL and then finishing off with a discussion around creating culture, whether we are creating a culture of over-measuring and being too cautious with our athletes. So really interesting part two coming up with Dave. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by athletemonitoring.com. 
the world's most comprehensive, versatile, and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations, and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at AthleteMonitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive, at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. In that third vertical that you mentioned there, mm. has there been any instances across your career when that's... Because it's a, it's a very big punch in the face when that doesn't happen on a yep. game day um, because it's obviously in front of the eyes of the world in, in terms of the, the kind of calibre of athletes you're working with. Has there been any instances where you've reflected and thought, that's I, have, I haven't done that? That's I've not take, I've not completed that third bucket of making sure they're fresh. Yeah, it totally has. And I think um, what's good and bad about those situations is you you learn from it and you put into place interventions that really start to drive our industry. Right? People learn from these type of things. Um, so there was definitely an incidence in my mind uh, with a an Olympic team that we went from one particular tournament to another and it was a close turnaround. It was like four weeks. And I thought from a physical standpoint that we were well enough prepared that having the week off and then going into our normal preparation when our two weeks preparation and a week holding camp would be enough to still have us in a good place for the following tournament. Um, but what actually happened is we did really well in the World Cup and then four weeks later, we had another um, intercontinental tournament and kind of didn't perform as well. And I was like, oh, God. Now, I'm not saying it was down to that, but <laughs> like anything, you kind of look inwardly on yourself and I'm thinking, wow, maybe we weren't, maybe we didn't hold those physical qualities as well as I, I'd hoped. But as a result of that, um, I kind of looked at, I knew that when that came up again, we weren't going to make the same mistake. And so we modified, we looked at kind of the recovery week, number one, 
uh, and we, we worked more on kind of the social debrief. So rather than let them go away for a week, they did the same recovery together, um, played a part. And then I also looked at some uh, ischemic preconditioning on bikes to kind of do low level work, but still enhance um, or maintain some of the peripheral adaptations you get in the muscle from a, an aerobic standpoint. So by using ischemic preconditioning on a bike, I believe that held some of our uh, enzymatic or peripheral changes you get with conditioning that meant they still did light work, but we didn't lose any conditioning, which I felt potentially we did elsewhere. And then I use that um, systematically with some of the preparation I've done. Mm-hmm. Just touching on that recovery point there. Yeah. How's your thoughts on recovery changed over your over your career over since again since we last spoke? I know you've been in different environments with different turnaround times and different yeah. athletes, male, female, etc., collegiate, pro. But how in in general, and we'll get a little bit more specific in a minute, what's your thoughts in, on that area? Recovery is a, a big one, right? So number one, um You've got acute recovery, right, where you're looking at immediately. So the Olympic environment, right, you've got to recover within 24 hours for a game. That's a different recovery package to a one-week turnaround from, do you know what I mean? Of course. So absolutely. there's different, different types of recovery. But fundamentally, I think um, you've got to look more at the individual and the type of stress they're exposed to. I think that's where we can now get better. So if you're an athlete who takes a lot of contact, that is a different recovery modality required than one who did a lot of high-speed running, which is different to someone who did a lot of running. You know what I mean? Because you've got Absolutely. the metabolic stress of running, you've got a CNS stress of high-speed running, and you've got the edema and contusion element and inflammation of contact. But we have a habit of kind of treating the same. So I think that the next area is trying to make um, the recovery a bit more bespoke. There's a lot of research coming out to suggest that, you know, from a endurance standpoint, heat may be beneficial as it relates to circulation and muscle metabolism and glycogen and the rest of it. Um, and I think from a CNS standpoint, we know that that system typically responds well to temperature. So contrast and cold and heat has, can kind of have a role. Um, and I think from we know that when you're talking about contact, that again, ice is kind of one way potentially to, to help mitigate some of the, the inflammation that you might have there. Um, other things that I'm more aware of kind of working with, with athletes is like using pool recoveries on recovery days. I've always been a big advocate for that, but I would always go against using pool or any extended water-based activities on game day. Because in my mind, you're always trying to keep that muscle tendon compliance. And I can't help but feel when you get in water, you create, you lose some of that natural stiffness that you want. So this is immediately after the game? You know, this is before. Potentially. Oh, before the game. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe you're yeah, yeah. an evening game and you want to take them to a pool recovery in the morning. Okay. Or, yeah. you know, they want to get into baths for an extended period of time. Like, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I can, my experience is with using things like drop jump where we would test on game days where potentially we'd seen some of that, you don't necessarily see the same stiffness qualities as you would hope. And I wonder if it's because that unloading and that muscle tendon compliance that you want, those stiffness qualities you want, whether the water and that kind of anti-gravity, if you're in there a long time, can actually have a negative effect. Negative effect in that your body adapts well and the minute you start moving again, you're going you're gonna to recreate those 
um, it's kind of relationships, but do you want to spend that additional time trying to correct it, right? Mm-hmm. With, did I answer that question or did we go way off kind of? No, 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 you absolutely did. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a couple <clears> of <throat> questions off the back of that. The introduction of heat and the more work in this area, which I spoke to Shona Housen about a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. What's the – have you had any athlete feedback from a more of an introduction of, of heat in the recovery process when it's typically been all about cold and now moving towards heat? heat? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny area because I think the other piece that we haven't spoken about is so much of this with athletes is what they like, right? There's this huge <laughs> kind of endocrine, testosterone, cortisol situation going on where – and Christian Cook did a load of work on this where he kind of looked at if athletes like something, whether it's wearing compression or getting an ice bath, you see a positive effect, not just in testosterone, but also some physical markers. But if you put them in water that's too cold and they know it's too cold, they don't like it. Well, guess what? They don't respond. And if you put an athlete in a bath, uh, an ice bath that's warm and they're like, it's not feel cold. <laughs> they don't respond because you know what I mean so yeah. so a lot of this as well is is it's important that you educate the athletes on the modality so we will do everything we can or I've always done everything I can to explain to athletes what is the physical consequence of this particular modality what what should you expect for wearing compression what will it do to your blood flow or circular you know whatever it is um, so that they understand why they're doing it. So potentially they buy in more, which means that if they buy in, they're going to see a better outcome. Um, so that, I, I think that's another big piece is you can't just throw recovery because a research paper said that it works. Because if an athlete doesn't believe it, you're wasting your time anyway. Because we do have these natural responses to things. But if you can get them to buy in and believe it and it makes sense, um, then I think you'll see some, some positive effects. And so to your point about the heat, as long as they understand why they might be getting that modality choice for their recovery, then that's important. And I think the other thing to take into account is recovery changes so much over 24, 48, 72 hours. The focus needs to change as I'm trying to get you close to the game. And I know that Robin Thorpe has done his PhD in this area, and he'd be a great guy to kind of talk in more detail. Um, but, yeah, that's my thoughts. He's on the list. He's been pestered de- daily. I'd say. Oh, really? he, just yeah. he just not responded. Yeah, yeah. He did what I said. We've lined up a call and he just had turned up. No, 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 he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get him on, so hopefully hopefully we'll do in the future. But then, then obviously, the big caveat comes in of life, i.e. you're at the other side of the country and you've got a recovery protocol that's gold standard that you believe has worked, but you've actually got to get on a plane because you've got to, mm-hmm. um, you've got to get home. So that yeah. obviously throws life... Um, Gets, gets chucked in the way. So you've got yep. to adapt and, and whatnot. Is there anything you have on the road that is specifically built for exactly that in terms um, of protocols? We're fortunate, I think, with the, the league we're in, um, that normally post-game, if guys want to do something, whether it's hot or cold, it's, it's available. Yep. Um, we do do other pieces, like we do medically rated compression. We will use other devices that kind of help on a flight for when they're returning to try and expedite as much as we can um, the athlete. But when we're home is where it's probably more effective because um, when you're on a weight, it's definitely going to be a little bit more um, limited with, with what you're able to get to. Plus, you've got more stress that goes on with travel, particularly 
with us, we're potentially talking time zone travel as well. Very late flights getting in early. Like they're the challenges that we we deal with. So back to the again, kind of touching on that, but back to the the first couple of points you made around sports science. Do you think we're becoming a little bit too cautious on the measuring, monitoring, assessing side of things um, as a sports scientist, performance scientist? I don't know. I don't know if we're becoming we like the big we are coming too yep. cautious. I think everyone is very aware that now and then again a broad brush, but I'm assuming that people are very aware that we are actually making we will make more fragile athletes. That's ultimately what we'll do, right? It all becomes about recovery. I mean, anyone can do a good job if I'm making you fresh for the weekend by doing less. <laughs> right? It's yeah. like it's like when you want someone to to heal, like yeah, I'll, I'll help you heal. Just rest. Like yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, there are other interventions that we can do. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I think I think it's it's a balancing act, right? Ultimately, what the goal should be, you got to work these athletes as hard as you can because that's the only way you're getting a performance edge. And then you've got to be very smart in the way in which you um, maximize their return, right? So you've got recovery post-game. Are people looking at recovery pre-game? Like, you know, what, and they are. Um, but there's definitely avenues and opportunities to put interventions in place to try and mitigate the degree of fatigue and also maximize the return. Um, and that's where I think as performance scientists, sports scientists, we have to be able to get, we have to be better, right? So it's trying to understand in my mind, it's the simple equation of you need to know how hard are they working and then what's the impact of their of that work on their ability to perform. So over time, you want to look at pre and post the week. Where did you come at the beginning of the week? Where did you leave the week or go into the game? And then what's the performance marker that tells me whether you're in a great place, good place, okay place, or bad place? You know? Absolutely. That, Can you that marker needs to be not just one thing as well. Same as what you're monitoring doesn't just want to be one thing. So I feel like a lot of us can get caught up in our GPS technology. And again, I, I don't mean to upset people and I could be getting this completely wrong, but we spend a lot of time looking at GPS metrics and we're like, oh, within these metrics that are telling me what you did, I'm also going to try and find out whether you're tired. Like, I just don't think that's plausible. There's so much going on with the content of training, whether it's athlete availability, whether it's the weather outside, uh, whether it's pitch size or training content, um, that you can't look at those metrics and see fatigue by looking at max velocity or um, high intensity actions at a certain speed zone. Like It's hard to do, but I feel like we're trying to use that, that information that is is a descriptor to now also tell us whether you're tired, right? It's same with games, like playing a good opposition or a bad opposition gives you different GPS metrics. It doesn't mean they're running slower because they're tired. It was a different, comp it was a different game. Mm -hmm. And so more and more, I think you've got to have this other external marker of how are they responding, whether it's wellness information, how do you feel, or whether it's some kind of physical quality you assess with a little poke that tells you how is that system today. And then once you have that, you know how much work they've done, and now you know how they've responded to it. And different volumes of work are going to create different outcomes. And once you learn what they are, 
now you can have a conversation with a coach about this and that. Now you can work as a, a performance team to help mitigate X and Y, or I know the coach is working this week, but I wanted to get a heavy stimulus in the, in the weight room. But because I'm at least aware of this situation, I'm going to adjust something in my end and bite the bullet ultimately for the, the longer game for the athlete and performance. Mm-hmm. You mentioned pre-game recovery. Talk to us a little bit more about that because that's the first time that term has come up. Can you say any more? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think um, depending on the sport and position groups, what I think you find is that there's some positions or athletes that actually train harder in practice than the stress of the game is. And then you have others who get a high game stress that do nothing in training. Um, so th- this kind of first came about probably with uh, goalkeepers and field hockey, right? I was thinking exactly the same in football. Well, soccer, yeah. right? Soccer. Yeah, you yeah. go into a major game, the goalkeeper gets hammered and everyone else is just shooting balls on goal. And then the goalkeeper rocks up and goes, I'm bloody knackered, <laughs> right? And yeah. then he finished the game, so it feels great, and the other players are like in pieces. So you've got that kind of paradoxical kind of situation with athletes. Um, so I just think it's the same. It's being aware that, You've got to get as much. The coaches have to get as much work as they they can from a tactical ta- from a tactical technical standpoint. Um, but now you're only left with 24, 36 hours and a flight and a bus ride. Like, what are you going to do now to control the athlete coming into into the the game? And that's where I would talk about. All right, you can do your pool recovery, or you might do your mobility, or whatever it is. Like, is that helping you right now? depending on when you do it, or is it going to have a negative effect? So you might do a bus ride, knowing you've got a game, and you're, like, you're getting in at 9 o'clock, players haven't eaten, but you're like, hey, 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 whoa, coach, we need to get that mobility session done. Like, Is that now positive or negative on, mm-hmm. on the situation? So you've got to be able to work and understand that kind of whole performance landscape to be like, okay, where, where are my big wins? What actually is the, the most important um, outcome from an athlete standpoint to actually get them ready? It may be watching some very positive video images with the coach helps them put them in a better mind state than 20 minutes of some music and some foam rolling in a corridor. Like, I, I don't know, but do you know what I mean? Like they're the situations you got to think about. And sometimes you get it great where everything works out and you get the time. And then sometimes you're squeezing things in that potentially are more harmful. So you mentioned about not having pull, re- pull recovery sessions pre-game. Are the issues maybe around that? Is there anything else that you would kind of fit into that mm, not sure box pre-game? Yeah, I th- again, it's it's anecdotal, but um, yeah. if you think about it, where particularly it would depend a lot on your job as well, right? From an athlete standpoint, what am I about to do? Um, but I think generally, if you're talking about high speed activity, I think anything with heat, um, ex- long heat exposure, or saunas or jacuzzis um i think potentially from a a speed standpoint is something that unless you're getting a long warm-up you're probably going to want to leave because i do believe that it would affect um that muscle tendon compliance and kind of the elastic or stiffness qualities um and again i don't know if there's much research on this but it's anecdotal okay cool nice well, we're coming for 50 minutes, and I don't want to keep you all night because I know we had a bit of a chat beforehand as well. But yeah. any anyone that wants to reach out and have a little chat about anything we spoke about in this episode or in the last episode, where's the best place to contact you? Uh, probably just Twitter and Instagram, DK Hammy. Um, 
and actually go DK Hammy and you stick an at Gmail on it, you'll get an email address as well. Nice. No need to go digging around. <laughs> lots of um, lots of little whiskies and cigars as well on the Instagram. Mm, yeah, I do like a cigar. I was thinking about being uh, the first person to smoke a cigar on it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Is that has that been a recent thing, or is that a... you know what it has? Like it yeah. happened when I was at uh, State College. And, uh, one of the SNC coaches actually came around. He goes, "You want a cigar?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure. Why not?" <laughs> yeah, why not? Sat around a fire, uh, a couple of beers, smoking the cigar. I'm like, "This is really good." <laughs> <laughs> it kind of forces you to communicate to people. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, like you got this yeah, it's being carved out, and now yeah. we're going to have to actually, actually talk. Nice. Um, yeah, get the rest of the guys in. On the but you need to get. Yeah, you definitely need to get um, Robin on here. I thought you would have done it already. Uh, I may or may not have been passing for two years. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, we're getting closer. I, I promise, we're getting closer. But um, yeah, I think he's just getting his ducks in a row. And we can yeah. we can sort it out. But Stu's on next week. That'll be great. Um, I had a good chat with Stu a couple of weeks ago, so I'm looking yeah. forward to that. I love his work. I've always been a big fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched his um, UKCA talk from 2015 again the other day. Mm-hmm. It was really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, thank you for coming on again. Really appreciate it. Right. And um, enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you thanks, much. mate. Yeah, really appreciate it. So it's been too long getting it lined up five or six years after the first one, but. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, mate. Yeah, pleasure. Catch you soon. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to episode 282 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoy the chat with Dave. So big thanks to Dave for giving up his time and having a chat and jumping on for a part two, four and a half years after the part one. Big thanks to our sponsors for today. So Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Omega Wave, and a brand new sponsor for the podcast, AthleteMonitoring.com. So if you are in the in the uh, in the market for any of these guys' products, definitely check their websites out. Um, have a little look into what they do and why they do it. And um, all our details, all the details of the sponsors are on the website, so strengthofscience.com. But thank you for tuning in today. I've uh, got some unbelievable guests over the next couple of weeks. It's been a great couple of weeks for me um, recording some episodes, including Dave, um, with some fantastic practitioners from all over the world. So I'm really excited to bring you some, uh, some quality episodes over the coming weeks and months. So thanks again for tuning in, and I will speak to you next week.